Greetings, friends. It's July 21st, and this is the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast, where we read through the Bible together and point out important highlights in its unfolding narrative that help you understand how these 66 books relate to each other and the overarching theme of God's redeeming grace. My name is David McAdam, and it is my pleasure to serve as your tour guide. Today we find ourselves with King Solomon in the book of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament and in the book of Romans in the New Testament. Let's get started right away with Second Chronicles chapter 4, and we will read through to chapter 6, verse 11. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. We have been reading about King Solomon and the building of the temple. Now we will be reading about the temple's furnishings. Second Chronicles chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. He made an altar of bronze, twenty cubits long and twenty cubits wide and ten cubits high. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Under it were figures of gourds, for ten cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand-breadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held three thousand baths. He also made ten basins in which to wash, and set five on the south side and five on the north side. In these they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, and the sea was for the priests to wash in. And he made ten golden lampstands as prescribed, and set them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. And he made a hundred basins of gold. He made the court of the priests, and the great court, and doors for the court, and overlaid their doors with bronze. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of God, the two pillars, the bowls, and the two capitals on the top of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the top of the pillars, and the four hundred pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work, to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. He made the stands also, and the basins on the stands, and the one sea, and the twelve oxen underneath it. The pots, the shovels, the forks, and all the equipment for these Huram Abi made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zeradah. Solomon made all these things in great quantities, for the weight of the bronze was not sought. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of God, the golden altar, the tables for the bread of the presence, the lampstands, and their lamps of pure gold to burn before the inner sanctuary as prescribed, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of purest gold, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold, 
and the sockets of the temple for the inner doors to the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple were of gold. Chapter 5 Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with a hundred and twenty priests who were trumpeters, and it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised, with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, in praise to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Chapter 6. Solomon Blesses the People Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, and I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark 
and which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. And this concludes the Old Testament portion of today's reading from the One-Year Bible, the book of Second Chronicles. Now let's take a few moments to reflect upon what we have just read. The temple and its furnishings are built to a much grander scale than the wilderness tabernacle we became familiar with in the earlier part of the Old Testament. The increase in size was needed to accommodate the large crowds that would be attending the feasts on the high holy days, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, as well as the daily sacrifices as the temple in Jerusalem became the central place of worship in the nation. Later in Second Chronicles, we will read of the worshippers assembling at the temple in Jerusalem from the entire land of Israel. In Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 13, Now many people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very large assembly. The temple portrays the dramatic means required to bring the human race back into a right relationship with God. Nothing short of the perfect sinless sacrifice of Christ, symbolized by the shed blood of a spotless animal substitute, can remove God's wrath against sin and restore sinners to a genuine fellowship with God. The ark was brought from its temporary tent dwelling to the temple and placed in the inner sanctuary, the holiest of all. The mercy seat over the ark of the covenant, containing the law of God, was designed to receive the blood of the substitute. The carved images of the cherubim, protectors of God's holiness, originally guarding the way back to Eden, that is paradise, are pictured looking for the blood of the sacrifice. The book of First and Second Chronicles were compiled by a single author after the Babylonian exile, yet it seems that some of it was written before the destruction of Solomon's temple in 587 B.C. This is most likely why you have the statement indicating that the poles that carried the Ark of the Covenant are there to this day in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 9. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14, we read of the glory of the Lord filling the house so that the priests could not minister because of the cloud. This is a foreshadowing that when Christ, the glory of God, perfectly fulfills His role as the Lamb of God for sinners slain, there will be no more need for the Old Testament priesthood with all of its temple sacrifices. Now let's move on to our New Testament reading from the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Released from the Law Chapter 7, verse 1 Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. 
but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And this is the end of our reading from Romans chapter 7 in the New Testament. The gospel declares our freedom. In Christ we are free, not just from the debt of sin, but also the demand of sin. We are not only free from sin's penalty, we are free from sin's power. Paul anticipates that the believer might stop short of entering into the liberty of their salvation because of old habits in which they rely upon their own self-justifying efforts. We revert to the impossible task of trying to bring forth righteousness in the flesh. Instead of embracing our faith union with Christ and trusting Him as the Lord our righteousness, enjoying His presence and joyfully serving Him in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, we put ourselves back in the cage of slavish obedience to the law, trying to please God through the self-justifying works of the flesh. The futility of this arrangement is illustrated by an unhappy marriage of a sincere woman married to a perfectionist husband. We will call him Mr. Law. Mr. Law is himself a man of perfection, and he expects his wife to be just as perfect. He expects her to fulfill his demands for the perfect management and upkeep of the household, and yet he does not lift a finger to assist her. This relationship makes her miserable. She is bound to this unhappy marriage, with no relief in sight. The legal clause of the marriage covenant was, Until death do they part, and she was bound to keep it. This relationship was a continual drudgery in which she was reminded of her many failures as she fell short of her husband's righteous demands and bore his condemnation at the end of the day. But the Apostle Paul speaks of a happy turn of events. One day this woman is liberated from the no-win relationship through death. She is now legally put in a position where she is free to marry another, Mr. Grace, who is as much a man of perfection as Mr. Law except that he promises to fulfill every one of his righteous demands on her behalf. He invites her to have the joy of a harmonious relationship working together. In this new marriage, she is free to serve righteousness in the newness of the Spirit. The woman is liberated from her relationship of bondage to Mr. Law through death. The Apostle Paul does not teach that the law dies, but that the relationship of bondage to the law dies when we die with Christ on the cross. Our inclusion in Christ's death not only liberates us from our bondage to sin, but also to our bondage to the law. If we are walking after the flesh, our old sin nature, and married to the law, we will be miserable. If we walk after the Spirit, as those who are identified with Christ, we can have a joyful relationship with the Lord our righteousness, Mr. Grace. Mr. Law is spiritual, holy, righteous, and good, but does not function as a helpful husband. He was helpful to point out failings, but he did not offer transformative power to enable his bride to fulfill righteousness. 
Our own sin deceives us into thinking that we can fulfill these demands in our own strength apart from a relationship with the Lord our righteousness, but the result is death rather than life. Paul describes principles that operate within us. He refers to them as laws. When I end up doing the things that I make no allowances for, I transgress what I know to be good. This is the law of sin. Romans chapter 7 verses 16 through 18. When I don't do the things that I know I ought to do, I lack sufficient life to do them. This is called the law of death. In Romans chapter 7 verses 19 to 20. Paul would like to do good, fulfill God's law, but he finds a self-sabotaging principle of evil working within. This is the flesh, the old sin nature that is prone to self-justifying efforts to fulfill the law. As the poor wife described in his earlier situation, the Apostle Paul confesses that left to himself and his old sin nature, prone to self-justifying works, he is a prisoner both to the law of sin and the law of death. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Romans 7, verse 24. The answer is not a what, but a who. Not a program or prescription, but a person. The answer is to be found in Christ Jesus. Christ living, dying, rising for us in order for Him to live in us by the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Romans chapter 7, verse 25 through chapter 8, verse 2. Now let's go to the Bible song and prayer book, the book of Psalms, Psalm 17, verses 1 through 15. In the shadow of your wings, a prayer of David. Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. 
you fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is a prayer of David. His prayer is dependent upon a righteousness he does not have, but believes in. From your presence let my vindication come. Jesus is the unseen mediator. Our right standing depends upon Him, His perfect living, His perfect speech. David has this confidence in prayer because he has found refuge in his Savior. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 17, verses 6 through 8. David describes the threats of the enemies that surround him and war against his soul in verses 9 through 12. He calls out for deliverance from his enemy and full vindication. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. He contrasts how his prospects compare to those of his enemy. The men of this world have their portion in this life. In verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. David's hope is in fellowship with his eternal God in the resurrection. Now let's go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 19, verses 22 and 23. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The proverb reminds us that what makes a man most attractive and desirable is the way he treats others with selfless concern. How wonderful it is to be known for your kindness. In contrast, what could be worse for one's reputation than to be known as a liar? Throughout the book of Proverbs, we have seen the importance of holding the thought of our own accountability before God in all that we do and say. Fear of the Lord is the starting gate of wisdom. The key to a successful life is to have a personal relationship with the one true God through faith in His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the only way we can escape the terror of the judgment and be kept from the evil one. Let's pray together. Great and mighty God, we know that you do not dwell in buildings made with hands, but we thank you for providing a meeting place in the person of your Son. As Solomon's temple was a place for the exercise of repentance and expressions of faith and worship, we thank you for providing a place for this in our own lives also. We see how Christ came into the world to fulfill the law and not destroy it. We thank you for this new relationship where we are no longer under condemnation, but joined in a covenant relationship with the Lord our righteousness. Help us to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes our Bible tour for today. It was a little shorter than yesterday, but we covered a lot of territory yesterday. God willing, we'll make more progress tomorrow as we continue in Second Chronicles and the Book of Romans. I hope you are encouraged in this daily discipline of Bible reading and that you give some time for prayerful reflection, uh, meditation, and memorization of scriptures that speak to your heart.
If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us wherever you get your podcasts, or you can write an email to us at podcast at newlife.org. And if you would like to subscribe to a daily email with a written copy of our commentary on each day's reading with with illustrations, you can do so by going to our website, newlife.org. May your spirit be rejoicing and overflowing with the joyful revelation of God's great love for you, shown to us in the perfection of Jesus Christ and his finished work. Shalom. Shalom.